Hello and welcome everyone to KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. I'm Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to our show, What To Be, where we interview inspiring people and highlight their careers. What To Be is a program provided by Your Future Is Our Business, a Santa Cruz County nonprofit that helps students explore careers through programs such as college and career expos, career panels, and other work-based learning activities. Please note the views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Natural Bridges Media or Your Future Is Our Business. The information provided during this program does not reflect this career in its entirety. We also just wanted to let you know that for the time being, we are hosting interviews through video call and would like to apologize for any lack in audio quality. All right, and finally, today I am joined by my guest, Dr. Alicia Buetes. Thank you so much for being here, Alicia. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And Alicia is here to talk to us about her career as the electron microscope analyst at the Central Analytical Facility in... Stellenbosch in South Africa. So <laughs> what a, I'm first, I'm glad I wrote all that down. Otherwise, there's no way I would have gotten that right. <laughs> Exciting. I, 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 Alicia is here to talk to us. I found her because she hosts uh, her own polymer science podcast. And for those who have been listening for a little while now, you know that I am currently working on my PhD in polymer science. And so I am very excited for this interview. So to get us started, let's go with how did you get into this job? Oh, wow. Yeah, well, it kind of wasn't very straightforward, to be honest. Um, I think as soon as you start with your PhD, you'll find that as well. Like uh, when I received my PhD, or actually just before I started finishing up my write-up for my thesis, I was beginning to look for jobs. And it wasn't so simple. I thought it was going to be very easy since, you know, you have the qualifications that everybody's looking for. But uh, I kind of felt like a freelancer for quite a few months before I actually found and settled on um, being an an analyst. Uh, So firstly, I started looking into tutoring, uh, just freelance tutoring, helping people with science and chemistry and uh, mathematics where they were struggling. And uh, finally, my my one supervisor gave me an opportunity where I actually did practical um, practical facilitating for the first years of our chemistry group for our university. So that was a very good experience because I actually wanted to become a lecturer. That was my aim, my goal to after PhD. And uh, it opened my eyes and showed me the planning and the repetition that goes into the everyday work of a lecture. So I kind of also felt like maybe that's not for me. <laughs> Although it's nice to help kids and I really like working with students and everything, uh, it's the repetition that really got to me. And uh, I'm not a person that's known for her patience, <laughs> particularly. <laughs> so, but yeah, then luckily through contacts, and um, there was a vacancy that opened up at the analytical facility. And uh, some people suggested my name. And that's the only way I actually heard about the vacancy. And it became like an ad hoc type of work where I just worked on and off, you know, hour by hour when they needed me, I came in. Um, and yeah, luckily through my experience with my postgrad, I worked a lot with the electron microscope. So they trusted me with it. And that somehow eventually became a full-time gig where I eventually got like to a, a contract and they kept me on until now. <laughs> Can you explain to me as if I were in, in primary school, what is an electron microscope and what does it do? Oh, it's awesome. It's a really amazing tool. It actually, if you know a light microscope, it's very similar to that. 
where you, instead of using light, where you visualize your sample, use electrons. So imagine that you are blind, you can't see anything. So you're feeling across the surface to see what you can find and the details that you can, uh, the information that you can obtain. Now the electrons are basically working in that same way. It's being predict predicted from a field emission gun, which generates a high beam of electrons. And that brushes over your sample and sends signals back to a detector that can then show you exactly the surface height variations of your sample. And then ev eventually actually visualize that into an image that gives you the idea of the 3D image that you're actually seeing. So how, I, I'm trying to be from from a perspective of not knowing what even a, a light microscope mm -hmm. is. So the light microscope is just a, your standard, what you would see on most stereotypical lab benches, right? It's just the one that you picture yeah. a person in a white lab coat looking through and they've got yeah. that glass slide. That's the light microscope. How, yeah. That's how... usually the one you, you get it introduced to very early right. on in your science. Yes. And how big is a usual electron microscope for comparison? Okay, that is yeah, quite huge. <laughs> very much, very much bigger than a, a normal light microscope. I I don't even know how many times bigger, <laughs> but it's it's uh, it needs its own corner within a room. So, just to give you an idea, <laughs> so lo larger than um, an average person probably. It is. It's it's as tall as I am, and I am one point five three meters. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's a it's a big thing to use, and there's a lot of components in there that's uh, very important for you know proper image quality. Uh, where a light microscope usually it's a very simple. You know, you have your light source, you have your uh, lenses that projects the light and focuses on the sample. With the electron microscope, you have all that, but you have additional things like condensers and uh, windows that protects the detector and a vacuum that seals the chamber and uh, helps to control the electron beam. Yeah, so that's a there's a lot of components there that uh, is uh, additional to the standard microscope. Sure. And even now, I don't even know. There's so much progress with the electron microscope that it's it's ever changing it's like the people engineers are figuring out new ways of improving the quality and um, preventing damage to samples that are usually difficult to analyze so yeah if you just if you go on google you'll it's a feel that you go into that there's just new news picking up and coming at you every day yeah, yeah. constant constant discovery now did you ever think that when when you were when you were younger when you were first getting into school and first exploring the sciences that you might get into a, a field like this or into something as specific as polymer science honestly no i can tell you i had a very keen interest in biology and in my primary school i really excelled in, in biology particularly but coming to high school i actually struggled with maths and physics I was even told during analysis of what you should be doing for your future, a person that actually analyzes you and, you know, tells you what type of jobs you should bring on to apply for or to go study in. I was told that I should not consider going into science. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> and yeah, my, my dad, luckily, is the person that says, no, you're capable of doing anything. And uh, he just uh, motivated me to just, you know, work harder because because I was basically just a dream 
kid, I didn't focus in the class. And uh, that was the reason I wasn't doing as good as I should be doing with my maths and my science. And once we started getting help and focusing on, you know, actually figuring out the problem and getting extra classes and working just as hard as I should be, the actual effort that needed was that was needed. And then, yeah, finally, I actually started doing really well on maths and I really enjoyed the physics. And I ended up going into a degree where I started first with a BSc in sports science. Uh, because I also loved sports and I did I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do but I knew it was going to be something in science and um, yeah so it was sports science for me because I loved both of those things and that was just a natural step and then luckily because I did BSc in sports science I could change once I realized that I really enjoyed this chemistry field and that made the transition much easier because I already had all the, the first year courses behind my back and I, when I did second year I, I could basically just continue in the chemistry field and leave the sports science behind so that was a it was quite a road it wasn't so simple actually for me I wasn't like uh, waking up one morning and say yes I want to do a PhD in polymer science one day yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you know it was um, I, my my like I said my main goal was to become a lecturer actually it was much less than that I was actually I wanted to become just a normal teacher because I loved working with kids <laughs> and yeah like that was my goal and I really really I appreciated my mother for being a great teacher and my, my grandmother was also a great teacher so that was as simple as it was for me I just wanted to you know be in a classroom but it's strange how your personality develops and how people around you influences you and then eventually you actually realize no maybe maybe I'm not really thinking about my personality and what I need and how I should be taking my future under my own control so then luckily there were people like that that kind of pushed me into this direction and I didn't even know of polymer science honestly until my third and final year of my um, BSc in chemistry so, yeah, that was also very, very interesting to finally be exposed to this new field, according to my um, experiences now. And uh, luckily, I had a great supervisor and she yeah, pushed me further into continuing with my master's and then continuing with my PhD. And of course, my my fiance at that time, now my husband, also wasn't going to let me just take myself for granted. So it was all accumulation of people around you and your environment and your experiences and your your, your own motivations and um, how they change. That's wonderful. It sounds like you had a great support system. Have a great support it system. It's a crucial step. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, how did you, since you said uh, you picked sports science because you really liked sports, what what sports do you like and did you play any? Oh, um, I was a, a gymnast, a rhythmic gymnastic um, champion. <laughs> I oh say this, it feels like I'm blowing my own trumpet. But um, yes, I was an essay champion. So I really enjoyed you know doing that. And I actually I went into judging courses where if you ha complete your judging course, you can actually uh, carry on to become good enough to judge at Olympics and so on. So, um, but yeah, that, because we were competing against the Russians and people that are, you know, exercising eight, eight hours a day, um, I, I wasn't, unfortunately, South Africa wasn't up to that standard. Mm -hmm. So my mm -hmm. goals for reaching Olympics wasn't quite as realistic as it you know, would have been if I was in a, maybe in a different country where there were different support systems for that. But uh, yeah, and then I also loved hockey and 
karate and all those yeah basically i love all the sports <laughs> so my parents also thought well you know we want you to do, do the science part but we see that you really really enjoy sports so when i did my first year in sports science it was literally the best year of my life because you were active the most time of the day there wasn't one hour where you actually sit down in a class where you had to attend chemistry or uh, mathematics or something like that so the rest of the day was uh, cricket rugby swimming all that practical classes and then also a little bit of theory but it was mostly practical and we laughed and you exercise and you bond with the people that you're studying with in that matter unfortunately I realized that once again I don't see myself becoming a coach or an essay coach or you know something in that line and uh, yeah I didn't really see myself also you know becoming a biokineticist because I really actually enjoyed like I said the chemistry part of my my lectures uh, where we saw where we worked in the practical lab and we made and we syn synthesized chemicals and I realized yeah this is actually more me <laughs> I enjoy the the analytical and the synthesizing part of this course more was there a uh, a particular lab experiment that you did during that year that made you really think to yourself oh I think this is what I would like to start doing instead <laughs> honestly it's all a blur that part was so scary for me in the first year I was probably known for the person breaking all the glass in the laboratory <laughs> yeah yeah when I came in the demonstrators actually like walked with me <laughs> And they kept their eye on me. So, but that also helped because I kind of bonded with them and they were starting to see potential me and I was learning more from them because they were literally standing next to me and supervising me the whole time. So it was very interesting. There was a particular experience in the lab where I realized, yeah, this, this is actually such a nice environment to be around. And also you kind of, there's so much potential. Uh, and I think it was something as simple as just like a, uh, titration. It was just a simple titration um, method where we were using iodine and, and checking for starch in the solution. Something as simple as that, but the, all the colors and the, the the chemical interactions that occurred in that moment, I was like, "Yeah, wow." Can <laughs> you walk us walk us through the the a titration process? Right. What what is the titration used for, and what what colors are you seeing? when you when you see this this process happen well there's quite a few different types of processes that you can use titration for i acted just to like find the concentrations of your of the specific solvent that you're looking for within your your sample for yo i can't even remember the exact experiment that we had let me just think well, I can basically tell you the titration process uh, is a, it's a, well, okay, it's a chemical analysis that we use to quantify the con constituents, I think it is, of a sample. So, but I honestly can't remember the exact practical we did, but it was basically, I think, to measure the starch within a sample. And when you add the iodine, it interacts with the starch and then it becomes like this uh, extreme blue color. But then when it hasn't reached equilibrium yet, it will go away. So the blue color will disappear again. And then once you add another bit of iodine, then it will interact with the starch, but it becomes at an equilibrium the more you add. And then once it reached that equilibrium, 
uh, where the, the sample is completely blue or the, the color stays, then you actually can say, oh, well, okay, then you can actually measure that volume that you added of the iodine, and then you can determine how, how much starch was in the sample for the iodine to actually reach equilibrium. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, there's, there's some in, in this hypothetical example, there's some amount of starch in your, in your container, and you're just trying to figure out how much starch is in there, right? And then you yeah. slowly, you slowly drip the iodine in, and the magnificent blue comes and disappears and comes and disappears until you add just the right amount. And then all of a yeah, sudden, based on that iodine, you know how much starch you have. Yes, and based on the volume that you added and all that, yes. Let's go into now your 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 current your current job. How how long have you been the uh, an electron microscope analyst? I've been an electron microscope analyst. Well, it feels like I've been an electron microscope analyst for the last six years that I've been using it for the postgrads. But um, I've been for officially now appointed. I think it's a year and a half. It might be just a year. With the ad hoc, it's a bit difficult to say, but I'm going to say a year and a half. <laughs> okay. And so when you first, I imagine it's, well, it certainly has to have changed a bit given the current state of our, our world. But uh, when you first started, what was it like? What was your, the working environment like? How, how many people were you interacting with on a daily basis? Well, yeah, that's an inter interesting question because I also thought that because it's the central analytical facility that you'll be working together in one building, but we are spread out over the campus. So we have the central analytical facility, but they have their own components. So we have different types of characterization units and then ours are the EM unit, but we are situated in a geological building on the campus and we're only two people within that office. So it's just me and my manager, basically, that is working on the electron microscopes. During the lockdown, unfortunately, we weren't able to come in and work on the electron microscopes. So that kind of uh, actually created a problem because you can't really work from home in that regard. You know, you can't really <laughs> do much from home. Most people would be able to, you know, continue working via the internet or whatever but unfortunately our work is much more practical but yeah I used the opportunity to write on articles and you know figure out more sample prep methods and all that types of things because that always keeps varying I don't know if you're aware of um, you know the different types of sample preps and so on but for electron microscopes it because the electron microscope uh, keeps changing, the sample prep methods keeps changing. So we use that time to just like write up protocols and uh, write up some articles and so on. But yeah, it's it's mainly just us two. And then the central analytical facility is, a, a, I think it's approximately 40 people in total that works there. And what's the, what is the, is there like a, a mission statement for the central analytical facility? That was tough to say. <laughs> what, what what is the overall purpose of of the company? The overall purpose of the company is uh, they, they we like to support students, especially postgraduate students. Uh, we want to train them on the uh, various types of characterization instruments, and also help them with their studies. So if they have uh, complicated samples that needs to be an analyzed, we usually suggest uh, methods and we help them, assist them. But we also like students to be able to work on their own 
and trust themselves with the instruments and then also gain that experience and put it in their CV for when they one day want to work. And then also we, we also support clients and in, uh, from industries and from businesses. We actually have a bunch of different types of clients that I've never expected to work with. Where first, you know, you have your standard quality control checks, but then there's been some interesting ones where you actually see they check for corrosion or um, they have like a possible legal matter where they need to get scientific proof to be able to support their, their statement, I suppose. Yeah, so it's like uh, if someone comes and they are uh, suing someone, then they need scientific proof, you know, to be able to continue with that matter. Was was there anything else? Actually, you kind of answered the question. I was going to find anything you found surprising about that job, but that was the surprising part. Yeah, well, there's a lot more. Oh, okay, continue, <laughs> yeah. Well, firstly, when you work in the lab, there's a lot of dangerous substances that you're working with, a lot of dangerous solvents. And for biological samples, you need things that can fixate that sample when it's living. And once it's being killed, it needs to be instantly almost like snapshot, frozen, you know, so that when you visualize it under the microscope, it won't have changed a position. So we work with things like osmium tetroxide, which is very dangerous if it, it stains anything, it stains very well. So if it gets into your eye, it stains your cornea and you won't be able to see anything. And it's not reversible, yeah. And then we work with things like uranium, which is a type of, it's a heavy metal. And you know, uranium is radioactive. So that's also a dangerous thing to work with. Where I come from in my lab, my previous lab where I did my postgrad, it was very easygoing solvents and it was uh, I worked with biopolymers, so it's natural polymers. So there wasn't really any stress going into the lab and working with these things. But with the electron microscopy unit, you kind of have to be aware of what you're doing and where you're doing it and what you're wearing with your standard protective gear. And uh, yeah, so one, if your nose is itching at that time, there's no scratching it, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> of course. So, yeah. Wow, what a what a high tech facility for for scan SEM. Yeah, luckily you get things like UA zero, which is a uranium free um, stain. But yeah, so there's they're trying their best to find new ways of you know treating the sample without having to expose you to these things. But for now, you know it's foolproof. So, what would you say is maybe your most stressful part of the job maybe it's dealing with some of those chemicals or is there anything else that you maybe didn't expect that just is harder to deal with when you're coming from a student bubble like i did where you're working alone most of the time on a project that's your own you have to say your supervisor will maybe you know put in a few um suggestions but it's you and your project when i went into this line of work it's no longer my work so I need to treat it like you know it's a client's project but you need to get emotionally invested in it but the thing is when you are working with a client now all of a sudden there's this new form of communication that you need to learn 
you, you're no longer, you know, your own boss. You need to be able to communicate with your fellow colleagues as well. So that was kind of the most daunting for me, actually. I find I, I'd really call myself, I would call myself a good communicator. But even so, I did make errors where I was not communicating correctly or communicating enough with the client and with my colleagues. So that was something I needed to learn, you know. <clears throat> you kind of learn that as you go. You kind of learn that through trial and error. Forget the osmium tetroxide. That was kind of the most daunting thing for me <laughs> to learn. <laughs> yeah, and then also, like I said, you're working with clients' results. Um, so you need to make sure that when you're sending that out, it's absolutely correct and it's absolutely unquestionable. Uh, you do not want to create doubt within your clientele and you don't want to you know, have that become a reflection of your competency so yeah so that's also kind of daunting you can't like in your project quickly run back to the lab and fix that and you know come back and get the new data when once it's out once it's sent to the client you know you need to be sure that it's actually perfectly in order do you ever have a situation where a, a client gives you a sample you do what needs to be done they get the data back and they don't like what they see so they get mad at you it, it does happen. Luckily, it's mostly not as severe as that where they get like mad at you. Yeah, they, there's always those little things that you need to, as you grow, learn to ask before you begin. Um, so I've, I've found a few things where that has happened, where you're investigating an image, especially now during the lockdown. You're investigating specific images on the sample. And then that wasn't what the person was particularly looking for and then you had to go back and zone in on the specifics that they were exactly you know like asking for in sure. that moment so we find ways around that because it's not so severe it's just um also trial and error basis because of this new change in the way we work because we're not allowed to have anybody in the lab otherwise they might be uh they might close our facility you know if we're putting people at risk for possibly getting infected with the COVID-19. So you've, you've mentioned the importance of, of communicating well and, and how detrimental that could be, right, and it is to, to the job. Are there any other general skill sets that you would suggest if, if someone were listening to this and they, they're already thinking that they want to go down a, a similar path in, in research and science and what other skills might they want to focus on or build upon? Okay, well, the first thing I would say is definitely make sure that you okay have your communication skills, like you said, that's key. But I'd also say you should really be able to um, have a, a protocol, have a step-by-step -step, uh, methodology, methodology which you can follow. You need to be able to have a work precisely and you have to have kind of a very organized mind if you're working in this field. Uh, because you're working with various types of clients at the same time. And uh, juggling those various types of data and results and making sure everything goes to the right person and things are not getting messed up and, you know, the, all that stuff needs to be, you need to have an organized mind. But coming to skill set, I think the first thing, if you want to be an electron microscope, there I go again with my English. <laughs> the first thing with being an electron microscope analyst is you need to be able to get training first. So you need to make sure that you understand the instrument that you're working with. And it's a, there's a lot of components on the instrument 
that you need to focus on and you need to get comfortable with. So it's not a simple thing of switching the, the gun on of the microscope and then putting a sample in, closing the chamber and then viewing it. It's a physics and engineering type of job. So you need to understand the electron kilovolts that you're working with. The, the beam needs to be strong enough for this type of sample or weak enough so you can see the surface of this type of sample. So it's all, there's a lot of variations and a lot of intricacies that you need to know before you actually start officially working in that line. So it would be a great idea to just look at a few videos on, on YouTube. Thank goodness for YouTube. There are so many people posting things and training sessions about electron microscopy. So don't think, oh, I don't have official training. Now I know nothing. You can still train yourself. You can still read up on all these wonderful articles about electron microscopy and sample prep. And then once you've actually have all those information and you made it your own, you'll be so much better off when you actually go for training and it will all feel more comfortable for you. It wouldn't be so scary and daunting and intimidating. And then, yeah, the next step, I think, is just actually practicing physical practice on the electron microscope. Like I said, the rest is basically people skills. <laughs> wonderful. All right. That's a wonderful way to end it. Thank you so much for, for interviewing with me on this. This has oh, been a, a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's career story. I'm Jacob Sheckman, and this is our show, What to Be, with today's guest, Dr. Alicia Buetez, who is the electron microscope analyst at the Central Analytical Facility out of Stellenbosch in South Africa. If you have any questions or would like to share your career story with us, send us an email at whattoberadio at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please join us again at 90.7 FM K-Squid Santa Cruz at 7 p.m. on Sundays. Stream online at ksqd.org or visit our website, yfiob.org, for more ways to listen. Thank you and see you next time.